Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Looking at photographs with Jeff Dyer and his new book, Seesaw. Jeff Dyer is the author of 10 non-fiction books and four novels. He has won the Somerset Maugham Prize, the Bollinger Everyman Woodhouse Prize for Comic Fiction, a Lannan Literary Award, the International Centre of Photography's 2006 Infinity Award for Writing on Photography, and the American Academy of Arts and Letters E.M. Forster Award. In 2012, he won the National Book Critics Circle Award, and in 2015, he received the Wyndham Campbell Prize for Nonfiction. His books have been translated into 24 languages. He currently lives in Los Angeles, where he's writer-in-residence at the University of Southern California. But today I'm talking to Jeff in London, not Los Angeles, and we're going to be talking about his new book, Seesaw, Looking at Photographs. Jeff, welcome back to Little Atoms. Yeah, thank you, Neil. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. This is the latest in a series of books. I say a series uh, over your career, a series of books on photography. So how does this one relate to your previous photography books? Oh, yeah. Well, it's, um, oh, yeah, actually, I, I was thinking, oh, great, that's a simple question. And then I, as soon as I start formulating the answer, I realise it's a little bit more complicated. So about every 10 years, I tend to put together a book of the essays that I've written in the previous 10 years, essays on everything. And in the last one of these that I did, Working the Room, that started with a section on photography, but then there were also sections of, uh, you know, literary criticism and writing on music and all this kind of stuff. Okay, so that came out about 10 years ago. And then as I started to look through my files for the latest 10 years worth of, you know, stuff, which I know the world had been so eagerly awaiting, I was disturbed to find that actually it was a really skimpy file. And I thought, oh my God, you know, I really uh, haven't written much. But the reason for that, I realised, is because actually uh, there was another file stuffed full of all the stuff that I'd written in the last 10 years just on photography. Uh, so it seemed to me that what had happened is that, yeah, I'd just kind of become a bit more of a devoting more time to writing about photography. So that's how it stands in relation to the general uh, collections of essays. And then in terms of photography books, I mean, there were those essays on photography in the essay books, but there was also the first the long book about photography, The Ongoing Moment, which sketched a kind of tradition of photography. And then a couple of years ago, there was that one-off book that I did about Gary Winogrand, a photographer that means 
so much to me. And then this is um, things that I, I've done, which have either maybe I'm either dealing with canonical figures who I didn't write about at all in the ongoing moment, such as Alvin Langdon Coburn, for example, or more contemporary figures, uh, for, for the most part, who I got uh, either got asked to write about or whose work I saw and felt uh, sufficiently moved by to write something about them. Tell us something about what looking at photographs means to you, then, what you derive from it. Yeah, I mean, it's that's one of those things where the question contains its answer in a way. I mean, uh, it's a book about photographs, and, yeah, what do I do with photographs? Well, I just look at them, really, and um, I don't have any any axe to grind and I don't have a particular method but um, I think it's probably my way of doing it is very similar to anybody's really that you know you're reading the paper or a magazine and you a photograph just catches your eye and you think oh that's a that's an interesting picture and you spend either more or less time you know looking at it and thinking about it Uh, and then I think so that you know there's that sometimes an individual image is interesting in its own right but then i think it becomes really quite interesting when you maybe come across another image randomly and you realize oh that's by the same person whose whose work uh, you know i saw a picture uh, that i liked a little while ago and then i think it becomes you come back very rapidly always in photography to that question which i, I think one can put very simply you know is it who by or is it what of because quite often it'll turn out that a picture might be of something that's quite interesting, but the way in which it's captured, rendered, or whatever the word might be, is quite distinct to one particular person. And it's really, it's that thing which I think has fascinated many of us who've written about photography for so long, the way that this impersonal instrument, the camera, can be a way not only of offering a documentary record of an event, but that documentary record is, as it were, water stamped or shot through with the uh, stylistic or uh, um, conceptual DNA of the person working the camera. And you say you don't really have a method, but as you explained in the book, of course, we are really all, we're all schooled in the um, <laughs> in the sort of the general critical methods of, I guess, you know, the 20th century in terms of looking at images. Uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, the only, the I guess, yeah. So, I mean, I would say there's nothing, um, well, yeah, I'd say this, I think there is a kind of, there is a kind of rigor at work and an intensity of, of looking that uh, the writers I like best bring to photography. So, of course, I'm thinking, overwhelmingly of of John Berger in that regard, who was such an important part of my life. But I think in common with Berger, I think there's nothing nothing at all academic about the way that I write uh, about photography or about anything for that matter. But, you know, I do have um, a great tendency to become very, very interested in things. So I think, uh, although if you were an academic, you might be talking you you might have areas of research I don't tend to have that but I do tend to have things that particularly interest me so I can spend an awful long time finding out more about them and uh, quite often I think the essays record if you like uh, the journey by which I've been able to satisfy my own curiosity about either a given image or the photographer who's created a, a whole number of, uh, of images. At this latter stage, the 21st century, we're so saturated 
with images, you know, whether that's magazines or tele- multiple television channels or pornography, which is something you talk about mm-hmm. in the book at one point, or, you know, latterly Instagram and, and other types of TikTok and, you know, social media type image producing products. Do you think this changes how we view photography, how we consume photography as an art form? Yeah, I mean, it it undoubtedly has done, although it's a change that maybe hasn't affected me so much because I'm not on any any social media at all. So my exposure to these things is quite limited. So um, even something like, you know, Instagram, lots of great pictures on Instagram, and I only tend to come across them, not directly, but because some photographer friend has referred them to me so they've gone through some kind of filtering or i'll bet maybe be uh, you know there'll be those things in the guardian that um you know they do their best pictures of the of the year best pictures of the month best pictures of the week you know and you could probably even refine it down to the best pictures of the uh, the minute but even when i was doing that column for the new republic called exposure um once a month i'd pick um, a news image that I particularly liked. And uh, it became obvious to me very early on when I started doing this that I could get completely consumed spending my whole life just trying to find the one image I was going to write about. So I very quickly managed to delegate that part of it to one of the editors at the magazine. And I said, just send me the sort of 20 best, you know, what you think are the most interesting, because I, I really don't want to start drowning in that image ocean, that image ocean, which used to be a, an image reservoir, but now is this complete planet consuming uh, body of stuff. So we're going to go through some of the photographs that you look at and talk about in the book. Obviously, you know, I understand the irony of talking about photographs on the radio, but all of these photographs are reproduced in Jeff's book, which obviously you should buy. And you mentioned Alvin Langdon Coburn, and I want to talk first of all about you actually start off in the book with a photograph of Paris, but Mm. has then reproduced this photograph of London Bridge from 1904 by Alvin Langdon Coburn. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to talk about why you chose this photo in particular. The first thing to say about this photograph, I mean, of course, obviously it's from 1904, although 1904 is you know, relatively late in the history of photography. It seems like a very old photograph, but it's not that old in the history of photography. And it's the first thing one notices about it is it's very blurred and indistinct. Mm. Yeah, well, to, to address several of those points, you're absolutely right that it, it's, I think the interesting thing about uh, Coburn and that picture is that it, yeah, it comes both early and late in the tradition of photography. I mean, we think of him as somebody, you know, who's there right at the beginning. But, and this is where the title of the book comes from, actually. If you imagine 1904 as a a date in terms of the whole history of photography, it's pretty much at the midpoint, actually, chronologically, even though, I mean, in terms of how long photography had been ran, even though the number of really important figures before Alvin Langdon Coburn wasn't that extensive. And even though probably more pictures have been taken today than had been taken, you know, in all of the years between the invention of photography and Alvin Langdon Coburn doing that. And yeah, it's very, very blurry. And Coburn is an interesting figure, I think, in that he's very caught up in this idea of making, you know, making photography an art form. And one of the ways in which various people had tried to make their photographs look like art was to make them look painterly which tended to be to to make them look blurry and there's all sorts of 
you know, we can think of all sorts of examples of people doing that. Edward Steichen's work, very, very blurry, and some of the uh, early Stieglitz uh, work, this kind of thing of pictorialists. And I think in some, I mean, he's so interesting, Coburn, because on the one hand, he's very sort of forward looking, but yeah, he's really into that blurry thing. And I think that one of the crucial sort of moments comes in the development of photography just a few years later when, as Paul Strand says, I think, he says that, you know, Stieglitz persuaded him to uh, to remove the blurriness, that the sort of uh, the fogginess from his pictures. And Stieglitz's importance, I think, is that uh, he insists that, no, no, there's no real need for photographs, for photography to try to pass itself off as something other than what it is, that uh, photography is sufficiently strong as a thing in its own right. And there we get this kind of development of the uh, greater insistence on a clarity of image as opposed to going for some poetic, painterly blurriness. And in fairness to, to Coburn, he actually he's interesting in a way because he then moves into a very sort of a different kind of idea of painterliness. He moves into the kind of territory we associate with vorticism or, or something like that. And it's, it's also always... interesting that you do look at this photograph of London and think, yeah, that's probably what it looked like at that point. Uh, yeah, except, I suppose it was a bit foggy because the air quality wasn't mm. quite as good. But I think it would be a lot clearer than it appears in, in this image. But, you know, there's all sorts of reasons for that. The extended exposure times that you need in order to get a, a clear image. And that's why the body of water that we see under uh, under the bridge has got this, um, you know, it's got this kind of murky, murky quality. But, uh, yeah, it's um, it's both a very, very strong image. And I think these two things, London and New York, are really quite striking books. And yeah, that was, um, by the way, that was an example of something where somebody said to me, did I want to write this thing about Coburn? And I thought, oh, yeah, let's let's find out about, you know, what does Coburn really look like today to me? The next one I wanted to talk about briefly, and mainly because I think this is my favourite photograph in the book, is the Greta Garba poster in Paris by Elsa Bing. Mm. Um, If you would just describe what this photograph looks like yeah sure thing so it's um it's a picture of one of those uh sort of uh, a wall in paris with a uh, a picture of a sort of uh, a fading decaying photograph of greta garbo it's kind of palimpsest in the bits of the uh original poster of garbo still survive but the wall is starting to show through it and the top half of her face has entirely disappeared. So I think one of the things about this is that, well, what's it about? Well, two things, very obviously. It's about time, which me, which is, of course, all photographs are about time. And it's also about the image, you know, the way that an image survives, the way that actually somebody like Greta Garbo herself existed in terms of her image. So it seems to me it's one of these things, it's a very, very uh, simple image. And it's just got, it seems to me, to have it in concentrated form, quite a lot of what photography is about. I should say that it was taken in 1932, and it's, uh, uh, I don't know, I can't remember offhand how long it's taken for the, uh, for the poster to decay and uh, disintegrate like that. It's almost like what we're seeing is a reverse of the process by which the image emerges in the developing tray. We're seeing the image fading away into the wall on which it's uh, on which it's being pasted. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jeff Dyer and we're talking about his new book, Cecil, looking at photographs. And Jeff, you're talking the book about the rediscovered, or I say rediscovered, the discovered photographer Vivian Mayer. I watched that great documentary about her relatively recently and was not aware of her work before that. And you reproduce a, um, a self-portrait in here. And yeah, just tell us something about, you know, this idea of the of the photographer that, you know, has basically gone about a lifetime's work entirely unacknowledged. Yeah, it's, I mean, the comparison I make is with uh, literature where, oh, you know, the canon is pretty robust, really, you know, and uh, occasionally will, you know, somebody gets uh, gets allowed in who's been hitherto, um, you know, neglected or whatever, and there's a lot of that going on at the moment. But what is still a relatively rare event in um in literature is really, really common in photography. So a few years ago, a few years ago, of course, I mean, in that old Duffer's way, I mean, about 20 or more years ago, you know, I was involved in this thing whereby there was this photographer who'd been working away in America, William Gedney, died of AIDS, bequeathed his, left his work to Lee Friedlander. And then I was involved in this project to hopefully get him sort of retrospectively inserted into the pantheon of uh, really important American photographers, which we we then did to a great degree. The thing about Gedney, though, OK, he dropped out of sight, but he was known at the time in the photographic world. Whereas Vivian Meyer is this person who, I mean, nobody knew that she was taking photographs. 
And it's more extreme than that. People seem to barely aware that she was even existed. People knew very little about her apart from the fact she was a governess. And then she produced, uh, then, I mean, it was discovered this great stash of work, which was so completely accomplished. And it wasn't just the thing that, oh, there were a handful of really uh, of striking pictures. There was this completely, you know, fully formed, stylistically um, unified body of work. And there it was, just this, uh, you know, just existing in entirely in a, in a contextual vacuum. So that piece I wrote came very, well, it was actually the introduction, which they asked me to write for the, the book that, uh, you know, was again hoping to, uh, you know, bring this work to light. But in this case, it exploded in such a way that then Vivian Meyer became this kind of colossally important uh, figure in her own right. And there was uh, many subsequent books, as you rightly say, there was this film. But it's, as I say, it's it's one of the really interesting things, I think, about the history of photography. It's not just that you update each new edition of a history of photography by adding a kind of new chapter saying, you know, work made since uh, 2010 or whatever. You're always having to add these chapters into the middle to take account of these uh, these hitherto unknown people, particularly when it comes to um, people working in colour. Because as we know, the standard narrative version of things is that colour, serious colour photography only got going with Eggleston in the early 70s with his show at MoMA in New York. But it's turning out that, oh, all this kind of um, colour work made before then is becoming uh, known. And of course, in, in keeping with that, there's been a book published of Vivian Meyer's colour work. So I think, although there's a lot of it about, she is the single most spectacular example of somebody who's been uh, brought back from the dead, who's been uh, exhumed in this way. And you also contrast Vivian Mayer with what's happened with Dennis Hopper's work. Mm. And this is someone who was obviously, you know, colossally famous for something else and also had a body of work in photography that was at one point well-regarded and then sort of like disappeared and then came back, mm. as it were. And it strikes me that this is not something that would happen now with a celebrity in the age of Instagram. Yeah, that's right. Uh, um, just to sort of correct things there, I think this these uh, Hopper pictures that we're talking about, they did literally drop out of sight in the kind of, you know, people lost, they re-emerged somewhere. I think they got lost in the kind of chaos of Hopper's life and his death. And it's a strange thing, I think. On the one hand, maybe the work didn't receive its due because of the fact that it was by this celebrity. So we're used to, you know, people having uh, exhibitions of their paintings, not because the paintings are good, but because they're guitarists or, or whatever whatever it is. But in, in Hopper's work, you know, he was, a, in case, he was a, a serious photographer. And in any case, there is this complicating thing with photography, because as Gary Winogrand so profoundly said, you know, if you take pictures in Texas a lot, then your pictures are going to look like Texas. And in the case of Dennis Hopper, because of the world he moved in, then, yeah, some of some of these pictures are interesting because they're pictures not only of a bloke who happens to look very pretty, but because, oh, that person's Paul Newman or that person is X or Y. So it is the quality of his work is partly dependent on the society that he was uh, completely, uh, completely a part of. I wanted to talk next about your chapter on Fred Sigmund's motels in Vegas. While reading this, I was struck by, you know, thinking of some other 
architectural photographers that I'm thinking particularly of the, and I've now completely forgotten his name, but the guy who took all of the uh, photographs of the uh, war memorials in former um, the Balkan states and, um, and people that take photographs of like, you know, brutalist buildings or whatever. And the idea of these photographs of, of these motels in Vegas that were sort of ephemeral buildings that were already in decline and now are mostly gone and how that acts as, you know, not only great photographs of an interesting subject, but also as some sort of historical record. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you can never tell uh, which particular buildings, which subject matter are going to acquire that particular kind of uh, elegiac quality. But yeah, in the case of um, the Sigmund uh, Motel pictures, they're really strong because I think that the, the allure of neon is so strong and you've got that kind of thing of... Uh, I don't know, you've got all that promise of romance. I mean, the, and it's the combination of that and the fact that it's past. And so, as was the case with that Ilsa Bing image of Garbo, where I said, yeah, we, we seem to be getting here something contained in this photograph of the essence of photography. So with this idea that you're documenting, you're recording something, and then it's uh, there will come a time when the picture survives, but the thing that it's a picture of doesn't. Well, then, of course, the picture automatically uh, is going to acquire a special resonance. So I think it's that idea of, yeah, preserved longing or preserved uh, romance, something like that. And I wanted to talk about the Andreas Gursky photograph that you reproduced in the book, the 99 cent store. Oh, yeah. Which, again, this is a photograph from 1999. Yeah. But has, and I know obviously when it's reproduced, when one sees this photograph in a gallery, it's an enormous photograph, which is one of the things that's sort of distinct about it because it's a, it's a photograph that has obviously a huge amount of detail. But this is, I think, one of the photographs, and I keep bringing up the idea of Instagram, but it's, it's one of the photographs that reminds me most of a photograph that one might see nowadays taken by somebody on Instagram. Beautiful photograph of a very mundane subject. Yeah. And yes, uh, so there's uh, there's an irony there. Um, but there's another irony, of course, in the um, in the title of it, 99 cents. So it's in one of these shops where everything goes for, for 99 cents. But I don't know what the what the current asking price for one of these Gerskis would be. Probably mm-hmm. not much short of a, of a million dollars. And it would be an addition of this is a picture of a store where, you know, everything is available in great multiple quantities. But by that, uh, by the strict limiting of an edition of a picture of that size, you, you pump up the value. And of course, also, I and mean, it's reproduced in my book, I don't know what size it is, two and a half inches by four inches, something like that. But it's one of those pictures where the experience of seeing it huge in a gallery where it's, I don't know what the exact dimensions would be, probably 20 feet by six feet, something like that. It's a completely sort of immersive experience. And typically for me, I mean, my my main interest, my main way of looking at photographs is when they're in books. And, uh, you know, I really love Gary Winogrand. And of course, it's nice to see them on a museum wall, but you don't lose too much of the experience by looking at them when they're reproduced, however poorly uh, and quite smallly in a book, whereas that Gursky experience, the experience of looking at a Gursky is so 
bound up with its size, and it became possible technologically to do things on uh, on that scale at exactly the time that uh, Gursky was doing these things. And I think it seems to me he's recording a particular sort of historical moment in perception, and there's all sorts of ways technically in which which he does that. But what we get is a, a kind of this weird thing of a two-dimensional immersion, as it were. You know, you can really lose yourself in a Gursky image, And also it's one of these things that, um, you know, we've all seen places like that all the time. But I wonder, did we did we become much more conscious? Were these places somewhat invisible to us before Gursky brought them to our attention? Of course, they must have existed before he photographed them. Otherwise, he couldn't have photographed them. But we were in some way, I think, oblivious to them, maybe before before he, he recorded them like that. Just one more photograph then, and that's the uh, the photograph by Zoe Strauss, which is yeah. called Monique Showing Black Eye. And actually, I was, I was more wanting to talk really about the um, fantastic way that Zoe Strauss first exhibited her photographs in Philadelphia. Yeah, that's right. I mean, she's such a, you know, let's say she was a kind of neighbourhood photographer in that. She had this great thing of uh, exhibiting her photographs. I can't remember the exact place, maybe... Um, what is it under the I nine five freeway I-95, in, yeah. in Philadelphia? So the the nice thing is that these were pictures of this particular place being shown not in the sort of exclusive confines of the V&A or the Museum of Modern Art or whatever, but in the environment that they were depicting and therefore becoming a part of that environment and making it nicer and people could see themselves or or, all that kind of stuff. What struck me about Zoe Strauss generally, whose work I came across randomly when I visited actually the Museum of Modern Art in New York to see something else where there was this retrospective of her work going on. So she's a very, very, it's this paradox, I guess, that I like so much, whereby, yeah, yeah, she's a very, very distinctive individual voice or pair of eyes, whatever you want to call it. But as you look at it, you can see how that distinctiveness is actually enhanced when you see it in the larger tradition of American photography. So I think, you know, there are all sorts of echoes of, say, Walker Evans uh, and other photographers. And since you've mentioned this one of the black eye, uh, Monique with a black eye, I think it's, you know, immediately you see that picture. You also think of the famous picture by Man Golden of, uh, you know, of herself with a black eye after, after she's been beaten. So I think maybe it's because I, I don't know, I don't know why it is, but I'm always very, very interested in the way that in an individual photograph, Quite often you can you can see the larger tradition of photography that has led to it, and that of course in you know that doesn't diminish a picture's originality. It just uh, refines our sense of its originality, if you like. And just to finish off, the last essay in this book is about John Berger, who you mentioned yeah. earlier on, and and the influence that he had on yourself as a as a writer and a, and I guess a looker. Yeah, just tell us something about that. Tell us something about the, you know, your, the particular influence that John Berger had on yourself and your work. Oh, yeah. well, it was huge, really. As a, I mean, I wouldn't have become a writer were it not for the influence of John Berger's books, because at that time, in the when I left university in 1980, you know, there was uh, two ways of being a writer: you were either a novelist or you were a critic, which meant you wrote about other people's books. 
And Berger offered this possibility of um, somewhere in between whereby you could be a cultural commentator and also a creative writer. You could be a a writer of something that was um, very original, but was also a form of commentary. And also with Berger, there's this thing of um, endless formal innovation. I mean, the way that he kept trying to find forms that were a form, excuse me, that was uniquely appropriate to the to the subject he was addressing. And I found for me, I mean, he was the first person I read to put it crudely, who made these sort of boring old pictures, paintings of men in ruffs or whatever, you know, in a museum look really interesting. So I guess he he really opened my eyes and it was through him that I really became properly interested in looking at paintings, looking at photographs. And stylistically, his influence as a, as a writer on me was considerable. I, I'm not sure it is so considerable now. And then the other thing that was so crucial is that we all hear these stories of people who meet the writer that they idolize or the right or the artist that they idolize and then it turns out the you know this idol has feet of clay whereas berger who was the first great writer i met turned out to be such a wonderful man such an exemplary man who set such a sort of standard of of, of behavior uh and who then you know uh it was the best thing of all you know we we became friends and it was just it was just been a in every way a, one one of the one of the defining relationships of my adult life i think so i've been talking to jeff dyer we've been talking about his new book seesaw looking at photographs which is out now from canon gate jeff thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about it oh thank you neil it's been an absolute pleasure this episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.